Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Great. How are you, Christian? Good. Thank you. Happy to be here. But not with us is Jason Rugg. He claims the internet is down. We'll have to take him at his word. He's probably playing hooky, but we can't prove it. Yeah, we miss you, Jason. However, we have a special guest with us, producer extraordinaire, Sandy Gordon. Sandy, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so happy for you to be here. He, he, she has a little bit more to her bio. Are you going to read that later? No, I was about to go into it. Okay, um, good. <laughs> I was going to first say, you might remember Sandy from past podcasts when we discussed her uh, production history most notably working on the movie Rudy. That's my one of my all-time favorite films. So anytime Sandy's on, it's a great time. But she is a producer working in commercial and corporate with a television background. And currently, she's a manager of production at DePaul University School of Cinematic Arts. So very cool. Again, glad to have you on with us. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm likening myself to Joan Rivers today, dating myself. And that um, I feel like I'm the I'm the guest you can throw in uh, on short notice, <laughs> like Johnny Carson used to do with Joan right. Rivers when he needed a guest. Well, since you brought that up, there is a CNN documentary series on late night, hmm. and wow. they they have the whole Johnny Carson Joan Rivers relationship, the good and the bad of it, and then everything else, you know, all the way from. Uh, well, who I forget who preceded Johnny Carson, but all the way up to you know, Jack Parr. There you go, Jack Steve Parr, and, uh, Conan O'Brien, and those guys. But uh, it's on HBO Max, I believe, and it's a great documentary. Whether you like late night television or not, it was it was fascinating. It's a good tip. Thanks. Yeah, I think I saw that sometime and I forgot about it, and I knew it would be fascinating. So thanks for that reminder. So Christian. Let's uh, let's get a, a film update before we dive into some production topics. Yeah. So as many people that listen to this podcast may know, uh, we launched our new uh, brand identity this week, and we are now known not as Normandy Project or Taylor Productions or The Girl Who Wore Freedom, but we are Documentary First. So it's a production company that focuses primarily on telling documentary stories uh, we released our new um, logo this week, which I'm super excited about. It looks like a um, a World War II patch, um, but you know, sort of with our own little documentary twist. So we're super excited about that. Um, we did learn, um, you know, that uh, we got accepted "Grueling Glory," one of our little shorts, which we're going to talk more about next week, thanks to Sandy Gordon's suggestion. Um, it, it got entered into a, or it got accepted into another film festival. So that's exciting. Um, and I did talk last week about, um, it was just a short little update. If you listened to that, um, about <laughs> the fact that I'm in quarantine with COVID. So I wanted to give an update about that because it sort of rolls into our topic for today. Um, we, uh, the whole COVID situation is completely in flux, as we all know. So I'm going to give a disclaimer right up front. Today is December 30th, and the information on COVID changes every day, just about. So the information that we're going to talk about today is what we know as of today, um, you know, December 30th, 2021. And uh, so please, if uh, you're listening to this and you're curious as to whether or not this is still the the truth, please make sure you Google it uh, because it can change. Um, and in my situation, I wanted to give a little bit more um, of an explanation. Um, we did travel to France over the Christmas break. There was a lot of anxiety around that, whether we should or we shouldn't go. Um, we decided to press on because um, two of the main characters in The Girl Who Wore Freedom, Jean-Marie and Danny Boucherie, are getting on in their years. And we do not have a lot of years left with them, um, you know, we feel. And Jean-Marie has been sick over the last two years. And um, they really wanted us to come and we really wanted to see them. So we felt like we were going to give it a shot. Um, we were vaccinated and boosted. They were vaccinated and boosted, as was everybody else that was going to 
we were going to see during the holiday break. And so um, we knew the guidelines and regulations, and we were checking them every day to get into France, were that you had to have a COVID test. And again, this changed right before we left within a 48 hour window. And you had to have a document that proved that you had to have a vaccination um, card, and then you had to sign a travel certificate. So there were three things that you needed in order to get on the plane to go to France. And so Jeremy and I got all of that done. There was a lot of anxiety about the COVID test simply because when we went to get ours at our local Northwest Medicine Urgent Clinic, um, they told you you wouldn't get your results back. You could get it back in 24, but it could be up to 72. So that didn't work if you needed a test within 48 hours. So we really had to push to make sure that we got it back in 48 hours. Well, how do you do that? Well, we learned through the whole process of trial and error that it ended up being the person that took our sample that was the one that had the power to make that test come back faster. And so that person, when we told him our need, put a surgery sticker on our COVID test, which meant that it needed to have top priority. And so, so that's what happened. We did get ours back in time. We were able to get our tickets and check in, got to the gate, and we were told there was a three-hour delay. This is a flight on United. We told there was a three-hour delay. No big deal. Not fun, but okay. By the time we were supposed to board, right at boarding time, we get a message that the plane's been canceled. And so my husband is global services. He usually is rebooked right away. He called the special global services people. And they told him that they weren't able to book him for, for two days. So what that meant then was our COVID tests were valid, invalid, and we were going to have to go back and get more COVID tests. So then we learned later, after we did all that, there was a 24-hour window if your flight is canceled. However, we still didn't make that 24-hour window in time. So we had to go back. We had to get a test. Mine didn't come back to the very last minute. So we went ahead and paid $120 to have an antigen test at O'Hare Airport. And of course, after we paid for that, my results came in. So then we finally did get on the flight. We got to France um, and we got off the airplane. No one checked the thing. No one checked our COVID tests. No one checked our vaccination cards. They did look at our passport. They didn't check our travel certificate or anything like that. So, so yeah, they make you jump through all those hoops and then they don't check any of that. Uh, so that was getting into France. Um, we then spent our time there and then at Christmas dinner, two days before we we're going to leave, someone came to dinner that had cold symptoms and said that they had tested negative a day or so before. And they thought they just had a cold and sat right next to my husband, Jeremy. And of course, we took a test two days later to make sure we could get back in the United States, because as of today, the United States rules are you have to have a negative COVID test within one day of getting on the plane. So um, we were told by someone that works at an airline to get the Abbott Labs Binex now at-home test that's proctored by someone at Abbott Labs. It's a rapid antigen test and that that would be acceptable for entry into the United States. We did order those online. They were uh, $69 for a pack of two tests. We took those in France. We got our results. They were negative and we flew home. And then we got home on Monday. Tuesday morning, we woke up and we were told that that person that came to our Christmas dinner had COVID. So shortly thereafter, I took the test and was negative. Jeremy took the test and he was positive. So that was Tuesday. Today is Thursday. And we've been quarantining from each other ever since I've taken three tests. I'm still negative. But anyway, as you can see, it's a completely rapidly changing and evolving situation and extremely frustrated. So if you don't want to have any of those stresses or traumas, just stay home. Just stay home. Don't be around anybody. Don't go anywhere.
Uh, if you do, you know, you're taking a risk and we knew that. Um, and the same is true in production. Um, you know, whenever you do anything in film production, you are going to be around people and you're going to be in close contact and you're going to be talking. Um, sometimes you're singing. Uh, so it is very important that um, you are aware of sort of the COVID protocols um, on a production set or in the production world. So I haven't had a lot of that since COVID started because we were pretty much in post-production um, when, when COVID all happened. But my friend Sandy Gordon here has been on the front lines of that. She was working with DePaul University uh, as all of this came in about in March, 2020, and they had to quickly scramble to figure out how they were gonna handle this with kids who had to do film productions for their final projects. And uh, they also share um, a, a sound stage at um, Cinespace where all the big shows are happening right now in Chicago. So Sandy, why don't you just tell us a little bit about you know your experience and what's been happening in your world in regards to COVID? Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, it's quite a story you've told, but it's sadly everybody's story. And um, so, like you said, I had just started working with DePaul just before COVID hit. I had my own scare because that was, you know, as, as the shutdown started to approach and we were hearing about it in other countries and what's happening in China and is that going to come here? Um, I had a friend who was working on a show at Cinespace Film Studios in Chicago and is right, you know, just a couple doors down from where our school has its own uh, stage that we teach on. And so I went to visit my friend. So I hung out with my friend for half an hour in his office. He had a cold, um, didn't bother to tell me that till after I gave him a hug hello. <laughs> um, but then, you know, didn't really think anything of it, but two days later, we heard the news that someone at Cinespace from one of the TV shows, that show that I had been visiting, um, did have COVID. And so that show had shut down and the person I had spent time with was quarantining. And so I had my own moment of, should I be quarantining? What should I do? And so that day I left work and went home and I took things with me. I had this gut feeling I wasn't coming back and I didn't come back for a year and a half. So, um, but when I, when I did leave and we did have this shift at DePaul of what do we do? Um, I kept my eye on what the world was doing because not only was I thinking about DePaul and our students, I was thinking about my life as a producer and, you know, that's still an active thing I'm doing outside of DePaul and, um, and what, what, what are my friends going through and I thought, you know, this might be a long term situation and I want to understand what's going on. So as I dove deeper into COVID protocols and followed the science and watched so many press conferences every day and talked to my friends that were working in the field, um, I had I went ahead and had um, certification. I took a little class in COVID training that became available shortly after people started to figure this out. And um, and so I became the person at DePaul School of Cinematic Arts that was sort of deciding um, what is safe and what's not safe. We were looking at what the doctor recommendations and the CDC recommendations um, and the Illinois Department of Health, and then also looking at film, international film protocols. And so um, the unions together developed a plan that was sort of a shared agreement um, white paper that's like 50 pages long of how film production will handle um, COVID protocols. Uh, because as you mentioned, Christian, you can't really make a film solo. <laughs> you can, you, it, takes, it takes a village. Um, you know, probably people watching here, listening to this podcast um, will think of all of the things they were watching on television where it was all done through Zoom or, or similar um, 
satellite feeds. And oftentimes commercials were being made by casting families that could do it themselves in their house. <laughs> so when you were making um, anything that wasn't your own family in some sort of shoot, you had to think about what are we going to do? So out of all of those protocols that were decided, one thing that came out of it was a new film position called a COVID compliance officer. Sometimes it's called a COVID safety officer. I mean, even just the name of the person has changed a number of times. So whatever you want to call it, it's your COVID safety person um, for your shoot. And the key to that position is that you want someone who's knowledgeable and trained and has a plan for how to, we can, can develop plans for how to keep your set safe. And also a person who is a neutral party because a lot of times, as, as anyone listening to this will know you, you know, you go to work with a cold all the time. People have gone to work with a fever because they just want to get their job done or they can't take a day off or they don't want to use their last vacation day. And so you all are subject to someone else in your office being sick all the time. It's not really a great practice, but people do it. We've all done it. Um, and the, in the film industry before COVID, there was no such thing as someone taking a sick day. Unless you were in the hospital, film people do not take a day off. They, it is very complicated to take a day off because you're not really easily replaceable. It, it's it's too, the, the show must go on. And the, and the call time is at six in the morning. So if you decide at five in the morning that you don't feel well, how are you getting a replacement by six who knows the film and everything that has to happen? So. Um, it's not in our blood. It's not in our DNA to take the, to take a sick day. Um, I mean, I was so on, I was on one set just to give an antidote for that. I was on one set where this guy nearly, I mean, he was nearly dying, and and he yeah. needed to be in the hospital, and he yeah. was refusing to go. Like, and he was an eight. I think he was a first AD or something like that. Yeah, they can't but, go. They're in charge. <laughs> exactly. And who who is going to replace you? So. That, that is absolutely true. That's why people have complained forever that the film and production industry is so unhealthy because no one has a healthy perspective of yeah. how to keep yourself healthy. And um, boy, has COVID knocked that all for a loop. Yeah, I mean, for sure, it, it's not a healthy environment to begin with because you're working really long hours, you don't get enough sleep. And then you also, there's a lot of junk food around. On my sets, I've stopped having the majority of the snacks be junk food. I, I'm really careful to have some junk food because we all need some chocolate, but I also make sure there's carrot sticks and you know healthy, healthy stuff for people. But that's also been a challenge during COVID. So we'll talk about that too. Um, but where I was going was that because you don't say no, and and you and that's partly because your job is important and it needs to get done but it's also because it's a world where your next job comes from word of mouth and from the impression that you've made with your previous crew and you don't want to be that person that screwed up the day of shooting so people don't want to have this negative um, impact and so that's the other reason that they don't come to, that they stay at work when they shouldn't. And so with a COVID officer, one of the really controversial discussions that has happened is who is the COVID officer? Because if you have a COVID compliance officer who is a crew person that, you know, wants to get a leg up in the industry, if they're, you know, if you hire someone at low pay as like that normally would be a production assistant and you give them the title of COVID safety officer, and you expect them to guide everybody for safety. Well, they're looking at this job as a way up and a way to impress Steven Spielberg or whoever they're trying to impress on your set. And so they might not be the right fit because you need to be able to, with this job, say to Steven Spielberg, you need to leave. You know, what, what person as a COVID safety officer has the, um, confidence and the security to tell someone on the crew, look, you are showing symptoms. I can't have you here. You need to leave. Or to tell the director, we need to stop shooting right now because we have a problem and we need to address it and we might have to shut down. And they'll be that they'll be that AD or that director or that producer who 
doesn't want to hear that. Look, we only have one more shot. It's, it's really important. We have to get this in. And the COVID officer has to be able to say, no, this is more important. Your health and the health of the crew is more important. So that's been one of the more controversial points because the higher um, experience level and confidence of the person in that role, um, the more money they earn for a living. <laughs> so it's a, it's a budget issue. And also people don't want to deal with this. So they'd rather just have it as a, as a check mark on the, well, I did it. I had a COVID person there list versus taking it seriously as a health concern. And, you know, at DePaul, we pride ourselves in being Vincentian, St. Vincent de Paul is, you know, um, the driving mission of the school is to have sort of that um, outlook of humanity. And so, you know, that's how I try to use it as guidance for our students. Um, but in any case, you have a COVID safety officer, however you come by that. And that person is in charge of the plan for your shoot and the plan for what to do if something goes wrong. So the first thing everybody thinks about is, as Christian described is testing because that at least will whittle down any outside, any um, outstanding, you know, issue of COVID where like we know this person shouldn't be here. Um, so, you know, you have that issue of the PCR test versus the antigen test, the rapid test where the PCR test is more uh, reliable and it takes some time to get the test results back, usually a day or two. So, you know, you have to quarantine yourself for those two days before you go to a film set, otherwise it's not really reliable. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that the film industry is sort of tackling testing. Um, the really big shows might have their own lab on site and do testing every day. But again, you don't get those tests back right away. So what a lot of groups are doing is um, a couple days a week, they'll do the PCR test for either everyone or the key people. And then they'll do the rapid tests in different batches of groups of people so that it's sort of like a herd situation. If we get a positive and another positive, there might be something bigger here. And so we need to maybe take a step back and, and test everybody further. Um, so that's kind of like the extra layer of caution. And then with that, there are the things that you do on a daily basis. So with every film set, even before COVID, the assistant director was in charge of safety. And so that AD would have a morning briefing of the whole crew and the cast of here are the safety issues for today and the things you need to be aware of that, you know, whether there's a stunt or there's a hazardous thing in a hallway, like whatever it is that you need to know about, they talk to you about that before you start shooting. And they're responsible for safety on the set ultimately. Um, so now that there's a COVID officer, that person works with the AD and the producer. They're on the same level and, and are responsible for those decisions pertaining specifically to COVID. But so they, they come up with the plan of how are we handling every little aspect of it. So how do we handle social distancing? How do we handle PPE? Um, how are we handling testing? And then the big things that I look out for and that I think are the biggest important, most important piece of the COVID puzzle on a shoot are when people are unmasked because you have to have unmasked people when they're on camera. So when, when are those people unmasked? They're unmasked when they do hair and makeup, maybe when they're doing wardrobe fittings and they're unmasked when they're on screen. And then you also have everyone unmasked when they eat. So you have to figure out in your 12 to 15 hour shooting day with your crew, um, when are people eating and where will they be and how will they be safe? So with big shoots, you know, if you're talking about um, a typical film or TV show, you've got maybe 100, 150 people or more. So what they do is they tend to have zones or pods, they might call it, but usually zones where you say, okay, let's say the, the construction people are one zone, the hair and makeup people are a different zone, the, um, the people dealing with um, props are another zone. And so those people have maybe color-coded wristbands every day, their area might be you know, cordoned off. So they have these different 
sections of the lot that they're in of where those people can go and you can't go to, to the blue zone if you have a green wristband that sort of thing and then there are you know decisions that are made about food sometimes the meals are staggered so some people will eat sooner some will eat later so that you're not all crowding together in one area to eat the seats are spaced out six feet on all sides, you know, a lot of people now are going to restaurants and they think, oh, well, once I'm inside, I can take my mask off. Suddenly COVID's not a problem. That's not the case. So, um, you know, you don't wanna be sitting directly across from someone at a meal because that's a projectile for the air to be pushing your way. It's better to sit on a diagonal. Um, you'll, you'll be a little bit safer that way, sort of, but it's in the air. So you wanna just be, masked as often as you can be and as far from people as you can be and then with hair and makeup that's the trickiest one you know you have to have someone putting the makeup on so with some of the smaller shoots and maybe with documentaries you know the the person that you're interviewing might do their own makeup or you can try to do some of it with the makeup artist and some of it with the person doing it themselves you kind of have to decide what is needed, you know, what's necessary for you. Always try to have them do their own if you can. But if you're if you're on a professional shoot and it's, you know, star studded and they have makeup artists, then, um, you know, or if, you know, the people you're working with really do need a makeup artist, then, you know, the makeup artist should wear a shield and a mask to protect themselves. You should try to be in a room that has, you know, a window open or have an opening, maybe it's a tent and the whole, the walls are down, whatever you can do to have air flowing. If you're going to have to be in a small room, you know, do you, can you put an air purifier in there or some infrared thing that, that helps to kill the bacteria? You know, whatever you can do to try to keep the makeup artist safe and the actor who's unmasked. And then, you know, with wardrobe, oftentimes they'll have the wardrobe put out for the actor in their zone and the wardrobe people will leave entirely and the, act, the actor can change their clothes themselves and then come back out of that zone and someone can come back in to put the clothes away. Um, similarly with equipment, we've learned now over the past year and a half, we weren't sure in the beginning, that this really isn't contagious through touching different pieces of equipment, but still the unions have agreed on this um, protocol and it does, it does state that you should not share equipment. So if a grip is carrying a lighting stand, that's their lighting stand to carry and they shouldn't be sharing that with other people they should wash their hands in between. Um, you should maybe wipe the equipment down. Um, the most dangerous equipment are the microphones and the walkie talkies because you're talking directly into that piece of equipment. So you're blowing your breath right on it. Um, so those are very highly um, uh, worrisome pieces of equipment and how you handle them are you know, subject to rules. So. Um, where are you putting the microphone? Is someone going to be accessing it? How, who's touching it? Um, how is it being cleaned? When was it last cleaned? You know, you have to really think about those things. We at DePaul stopped allowing our students to use walkie talkies entirely. Um, we might be bringing that back, you know, I don't know. <laughs> We, we have to decide because school is coming back in a couple of weeks, but um, we don't, we haven't been letting the walkie talkies out. We've been telling people not to wear lav mics, lavalier mics that are like the little ones up by your neck on your shirt versus a boom mic because the lavalier mic is so close to your face. It's more dangerous than a boom microphone that's like hanging above you. Um, but still both of those need to be cleaned and managed. So those are kind of the, the big picture pieces that the, the COVID safety officer is watching for. So with every set, you wanna know um, where can I wash my hands? They're reminding you throughout the day to wash your hands, whether that's using antibacteria, <clears throat> um, you know, gels, or if that's finding a water, a, a sink to wash your hands with soap. Um, and then with the meals, you know, um, making sure that nobody's touching, it's not a shared food. Like it used to be that there were caterers and you could just like share a salad. Everything now has been sadly for the environment, individually wrapped. 
left on a table where you can pick up yours. It's marked with your name, eat it. You don't share utensils. Um, it's everything's, you know, disposable. Hopefully that's going to change now that we're kind of calming down because it's really bad for the environment. But um, there's just been a lot of plastic water bottles and things that are individual instead of sharing a water fountain because of this uh, pandemic. Um, yeah, so those are the the big things. I'm sure I'm missing something, but you'll remind me. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great overview. Uh, one question I have, and you may not know the answer to this, is you know things like it, microphones in particular are so sensitive to um, any type of cleaning process. So how in the world are they cleaning microphones? Yeah, well, what they'll tell you and what the CDC will tell you is, you know, you should be cleaning things um, according to like how that material needs to be cleaned. And so what the film industry recommends is that you look to what the product provider tells you how to clean the microphone, right? So hopefully the people that you're working with who are specialists in that area. So if you've got a, a sound mixer, they should know how to best handle their microphones. You know, you can, some, some are able to have certain kinds of um, cleaning products used on them, but you have to just kind of know what you're dealing with. Like the wind shade of the microphone is yeah. different than the microphone itself, but you know, you don't want to like spray antibacteria right you know, Lysol like right on the microphone so yeah um, it's tough you know you can leave it out for what we've been doing with DePaul is we we would have students return our equipment by putting it on a shelf and then walking away and we would let it sit for two days because we know that with material that the the bacteria can't survive on different types of surfaces for more than x number of hours so like a piece of paper is a different lifespan than your mask has a different lifespan than a piece of wood. So, you know, glass is easy to clean, but like certain metals might take a few days. So we let everything sit for a couple of days. So that's even less chance of there being something on it. Yeah. One thing that you didn't touch on, um, and I'm curious about is temperature taking. Um, yeah. and the reason I bring that up is, one of the things that's been interesting over the film festival circuit is everywhere we went in the film festival circuit, let's say it was, a, you know, X number of days, each day we would have to have our temperature taken. We were checked for COVID symptoms, and then we were given a sticker for our name yeah. tag that's color coded for the day. So you can only get in if you've gone through that, that um, COVID checking process. Is that still happening on sets? Yeah. I will say, you know, the reason I forget to mention it is because I personally think that it's not really helpful because, you know, you could be asymptomatic, you could have a cold and not have a fever. In the beginning, the signs of COVID, most people that had, you know, really serious problem had high fevers. And that's still the case, you know, high fever is a sign of COVID. But um you know, it doesn't help if you're asymptomatic, right? So it's not the end all be all to solve, oh, this person has it. Um, but back to my original point, people go to work sick and they don't tell you they're sick. So this is a way to catch people in their lie <laughs> or you might not even realize you have one, right? So if someone takes your temperature and it shows that you have one, it's like, okay, you need to actually take this seriously right now. So that's why it's good to do they are doing that in a lot of places for production. Um, you know, I don't know that every shoot has temperature taking for every single cast and crew person. I think a lot of them do. It's probably still a protocol with um, the bigger shoots. If you're doing a documentary and there's like seven people shooting an interview in a room, you know, that's up to you. It can't hurt. You know, it takes five seconds. I would do it. I would do all these things as a precaution. Um, but just don't think of it as the like, oh, I don't have a fever. So I, I'm fine. Right. Because a lot of times we encounter with our students who are all ages, they're not even, you know, you think of college, I think a lot of people tend to think teenagers, but we have a very diverse population and we have grad students. So we have all ages. 
Um, a lot of people just don't believe that they that the rules apply to them because they're fine and they're immortal and this isn't going to happen to them. Um, but so we do we do have people take their temperature or at least check a box saying they don't have one. Um, and so I think with film production, you will find fairly often that it's still part of the protocol. Um, you know, the more buttoned up the production is where you've got more um, high stakes involved, they're doing everything they can to try to prevent this problem. Yeah, and I would say the same as you, Sandy, that it temperature taking or even question asking is not the be all end all because we all know that temperature does not necessarily mean you do or don't have COVID. Um, the symptoms don't necessarily mean you do or don't have COVID. I mean, I've got a cold now, I'm coughing, my voice sounds terrible. I've taken three COVID tests, they're all negative. You know, do I, I could have COVID still and they all tested negative or I could have bronchitis or who knows? I mean, it's very, very confusing, but I do think that it is still important to run through the checklist, you know, to ask the questions, do you have a cough or do you have this? Let me take your yeah. temperature because it makes you stop and think. I mean, now that I'm sitting on this side as someone that doesn't technically have COVID, um, but knows that I've got something, um, I think for me, I had to go to, um, I had to go to the hospital two days ago for a back you know, examination. And yesterday I was supposed to go get my nails done, but I knew in my head that they were going to ask me, do you have any of these symptoms? And I was going to have to say, yes, I have those symptoms. And they were going to say, bye-bye. Right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, I guess I just need to go ahead and cancel this because I may not have COVID, but I've got something. So um, I do think having those basic protocols in place to let you know if you're sick or not. Sometimes I would get my temperature taken and not even know I had one, but that would make me think, okay, is there something I, you know, I need to be aware of now? So, um, so yeah, it's challenging. I think it's something we have to stay on top of every day and we're thrown curveballs often. So this week, you know, a couple of days ago, the CDC dropped the incubation time from 10 days to five days. If you've been exposed to someone with COVID and then the rest of the, all of the agencies are like, wait a second, nobody told us that this was the new science. Is this right. really legit? Um, and so there's been a lot of pushback because people are asking, did the CDC do this under you know, political pressure? Um, is this really the science? Um, so I think it's important to stay on top of all of that. And for me personally, if I am responsible as a producer for a production, I always want to be better safe than sorry. And so I don't think that you can err. You can piss people off, but I don't think that you can err by being more, um, you know, cautious and conscientious during this time. Yeah, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough thing because, you know, the budgets are so high and each day that you, um, shift gears and say, okay, we need a down day, that's costing a ton of money that you probably can't get back. Insurance does not, production insurance does not cover COVID. So you have to now, one other thing I was going to bring up were sort of the consequences for the production company for these things. And so one of them is your budget. And so people are having to plan for COVID into their budget. You know, do we have a contingency plan? Sometimes people are having backup plans for their key crew department people, like having another AD in mind to call that's like on call. Do you pay that person to like be kind of the understudy for lack of better words? Or do you just kind of do a mad scramble when you need someone at the last minute um, because your AD suddenly is sick, right? I mean, when you're looking today, as of today, as you mentioned, December 20, whatever we're at, 30th, um, you know, the airlines have had to cancel hundreds of flights because the crew is calling in sick, which they should, right? But do you have a backup pilot or do you have to cancel the flight? And so in, in this industry, 
you're having a lot of those big decisions. It's putting a lot of pressure on the producers to have, normally producers always have a plan B and a plan C for everything. But this was not one of those things that people really had backup plans for because everyone came to work no matter what. And so, you know, you're having to figure out where will I go if we have to move locations, if we lose our actor, if we lose our crew, like what do we do? And then in addition to that, the other thing that, that the COVID safety um, protocols will outline is that you never want to have a big number of people, a large number of people on the set where you're actually filming because the actor is going to take their mask off. So you want the actor to be safe. You want less people in the room and vice versa. So um, when that, with that said, you're also keeping the number of people in the room low when you're setting up for that scene. So, you know, normally you have the cameras, people setting up, you have the lighting setting up, you have props and set dressing. And so those things, when you're coming into, let's say you're shooting in a house, but you're changing that house to have different furniture and, and you have to put all the lighting in and all of that. You might do the, the decorating the day before or the night before the morning of. And so then you wanna make sure that like those people leave the room and then the camera people come in and place the camera and then they leave the room. And then the lighting people come in and do the lighting and then they leave the room. And then the camera people make sure that now that the lighting set that the camera's in the right place and then they leave the room, right? So there's this back and forth of all the different pieces of the puzzle that have to happen that normally would have all happened at the same time. So you, the, the problem for the production then is you've now had to spend an extra two hours every day just because of the in and out of the room. And that does something to your budget in the long yeah. term, right? Because you can't get it all shot in the same amount of time that you would have. So it adds another day or two to your shoot. And now your budget has gone up by two days. So it's been a real problem. Yeah, it's insane because not only is that time factor there, the insurance factor is there. The backup factor is there. Now you're paying a whole new safety protocol person and a safety person, right? Right. And, right. So and that's true. Yeah, it's been it's been really a, a huge challenge for production because, you know, the the budget for the show that you're doing or the film that you're making was set not based on those things. And now that now that we know we have those things, they're not going away anytime soon. Um, and and believe me, everybody wants them to go away. It's so much harder to do this work on for everybody. Nobody wants it. Right. But we have to do it. That doesn't change the pocketbooks of the people who are funding this. Actually, and it, it's almost like people have less money. They're not working. Not as many things are getting out there. The only saving grace for during COVID for the film industry is that all these people who've been home and quarantined are watching a ton of content. So content is wanted, right? The, the networks are growing, everybody, all these streaming sources want more content. It's in high demand, but the budgets are stretched thinner. And, you know, I was just telling someone yesterday, you know, it doesn't matter if you're seeing the new Spider-Man movie in a theater or on Amazon or HBO Max or Netflix, the budget to make it is the same. It doesn't matter where it's going. It costs that amount of money regardless. And so it's like, even though there's more demand for content, the budgets are not going up, they're going down. And we're spending more just on the COVID safety by thousands or hundreds of thousands. So it's, it's, it's been a real interesting time for production for sure. It's, it's a, we're at a, we're at a critical mass mass here of what to do. Yeah, it's it, COVID has like every other industry really changed the shape of the entertainment industry on so many levels from production at the bottom to distribution at the top to the con content and consumers who are watching it. Um, it's changed everything. Film festivals, I mean, all over the board, it's changed everything in our industry. Some for the good, um, <clears throat> some not so good. And it, I think a lot of it remains to be seen. What will the fallout be, you know, five years, 10 years from now? Who knows? Um, I think one thing that I've been thinking about is I've watched Hawkeye, 
you know, which was just recently filmed not long ago or Spider-Man, which just came out. I watched, started Boba Fett last night. Thank you, Disney. Um, Is that all of those huge, gigantic productions have had to do exactly what we're talking about, but on a much bigger level. I mean, I can't fathom doing COVID protocols for those huge productions. It just is yeah. mind boggling to me. Yeah, it was interesting. It's interesting at, at, um, at DePaul, we share a stage with, you know, there are these gigantic sound stages and every, all the Hollywood film productions are happening on big sound stages. And um, so DePaul has our own studio space where we, we have our own sets that we teach on and we are next door to um, a COVID testing site. They took away one of the stages and the productions that are needing testing basically are paying for a stage that they're renting and they have their own lab and they have their own testing. And so you'll see a line of people for the TV show that we share our space with down the like down our long alleyway um, waiting to get tested every morning. And, you know, they've, they have probably 10 people that they've hired for these shows that are there to like, you know, make sure that process goes seamlessly. And then there's a dashboard, you know, that's all HIPAA focused. So, you know, that information is safe and the people's privacy is protected, but at least that those labs can alert the film production producers that you have a case or, you know, you have to send a person home or whatever the, you know, they, they can kind of communicate, but it is, it's a, it's a very well-oiled machine um, that has put these practices into place for the big shows. And that's where, you know, it's tough if you're doing a scene in an arena with 500 extras, like, how are you keeping the extras safe? You know, there's a lot that goes into it. Um, you know, you could get into so many conversations about all the nitty gritty with that. You know, fortunately for documentaries, the only time that you're really seeing, I mean, there are many op- op- opportunities to have loud, crowd, large crowd scenes. Like what if you're doing a documentary on, you know, a rock band and they're playing in arenas, like you're trying to cover those shows that would be different now than it would have been a few years ago. So, you know, there are a lot of these things that you have to take into consideration, even in the doc world, but for the, for the scripted stuff, it gets really complicated too. For sure. And we're not going to solve all the answers here, but I do think that it's helpful to talk through them because, you know, I want people, if there are filmmakers and they're trying to consider how to do their production, these are things that you're going to have to at least ask yourself and your team and make yourself aware of. And of course, you're going to have to scale down um, to whatever your needs are, uh, but there is no getting away from this. You know, COVID's not going away anytime soon. It's going to morph Um going to continue to do that. We don't know how it's going to impact us in the long run, but quite frankly, my own personal opinion is us getting smarter about our health is a good thing. And like you said before, we used to all go to work sick and whether it's the flu or whether it's a cold or whether, you know, who knows what it's better if we can start thinking about the health and safety of others and figuring out how to be a more healthful, you know, society and community. So yeah, I agree. Yeah. So Josh, you've been sitting here listening uh, quietly and patiently. Do you have any thoughts, insights, ideas, or questions? No, I don't. I, I appreciate, uh, I mean, it's a lot. I, I think it's, well, my thought is like, if I was in production, I would just stop doing production <laughs> until <laughs> it was, COVID was over, but For you may sure. not have that luxury. So uh, maybe you work more on writing, you know, <laughs> pick up that old script you're trying to or that's post-production you editing itself, right? or being a composer or something very solitary. Right, right. No, it all seemed very stressful to me. <laughs> I will, you know, I should also add that, you know, one way that the industry also changed and that you did see from your home screen over the past year and a half is a lot of these, um, whether it's the commercials or the live, even like even American Idol, for instance, was in the middle of American Idol getting close to the finale when COVID broke out and they kept the show going. And they did that by create, be creative people who know technology, have developed ways where you can produce and direct the show remotely. You could be in your bedroom using Zoom or other, you know, all the different 
the products that have come out in the past year and a half to allow you to have multi-camera um, live feeds, right? And so there are now ways that we can stay home is what I'm trying to say. You know, there are these shoots where ad agencies would go on the shoots all the time to be there in person, which is of course preferred because you're trying to direct the talent and you're looking at their clothes and you're looking at your product. And the same with a TV show, like you wanna be there in the room and to be able to give the actors direction and to make sure that the microphone is right and all that stuff. Um, but when you when push comes to shove, we have proven that not everybody has to physically be in the room. And so people can really start putting health first. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I give it up to a lot of the, um, a, a lot of the, uh, tools that we've been using, like in our industry, like premiere or, um, you know, is one GoPro is another where you can, um, have your footage shot uploaded to a cloud. Um, you can direct from remote, uh, you know, it just, they've gotten a lot smarter about um, integrating technology into directing not on location, uh, which is certainly better than nothing. And um, yeah, I think it's been very, very interesting for our industry, no doubt. So, well, Josh, any other questions that you have for Sandy that you can think of? No, you did a great job, Sandy. You covered a lot. This was, uh, this was really fascinating uh, inside look at a production today. So thank you. You're welcome. Well, it's, it stresses me out just to like talk through it. Cause it's hard like you, I think we should all just stay home. <laughs> Forget it. No more TV. That's right. Yeah. I, I actually though, Sandy, one of the things that I respect so much about you, I know it stresses you out, but um, having you in your job, if I, you know, if I was one of the people that worked with you, I would take such comfort in knowing somebody that is so detail oriented, that really cares about other people's health that is going to probably go the long way around to make sure that we dot all our I's and cross all our T's. A person like you is a great person to have on a production team. Maybe annoying, maybe stressful for you, but I, I do think it's good in the long run. So thank you for giving us your perspective and your experience. Thank you for your stories. Uh, it's great to see you. Great to have you here. So thank you so Me much. Too. Thank you. You're very kind. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. And I love listening. I'm a listener and a fan. <laughs> thank and you. I sent the, right. I sent um, the girl who wore freedom as gifts to many of my relatives um, as oh, a nice. Thanksgiving treat. So. Uh, did, did any, I hope they watched it. I mean, I really appreciate you doing that really, um, you know, with people sharing it, it's the best way for other people to see our film. So um, you know, you can, um, Sandy was bought copies for people and sent them as gifts from iTunes, I think, or DVDs. That's another way to do it. Um, right now we still are only on iTunes and Apple TV, um, in the U S and in Canada, we're on Delta airlines. Of course, we're going to be on voodoo in January for the girl who wore freedom. We still are waiting to hear back, um, from Netflix as to whether or not they watch the girl who wore freedom and are interested in it still saying our prayers for that one. And uh, we haven't heard anything more back from um, our pitches on the Brave Dutch. So, uh, you know, we're still hoping that after the new year, we'll hear some more stuff about that. Um, but if you have not yet joined our Patreon, I really want to encourage you people to do that. When I was over in France, I took a lot of extra video and um, our Patreon supporters are going to be the one that are going to benefit from all the new interesting content we're going to be putting up. So uh, think about joining Patreon for us, even if it's a couple of dollars a month, it's, it helps and we are super grateful. Awesome. We are grateful and we want to say thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody.